Father, we thank you for your mercy and for your grace. We thank you that you called us here. And so, Lord, we ask that you would speak. Father, fill us with the Holy Spirit. Give us ears to hear. And I pray that your will would be done, that we would submit ourselves to you and be examples, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. I don't want to teach this at all. It's not because I don't like teaching. It's not because I'm not excited about being up here and sharing what God has put on my heart. But this, you'll notice, marks a rapid and drastic change in tone and in language used. In the previous chapter, Paul was encouraging them to be a giving church. As God had given to them, he was encouraging them to freely give. And that's a good thing, a biblical thing, and so he was encouraging them to do that. And in chapter 9, it almost looks like he's going to wrap up the letter, and then, boom, we hit chapter 10. And for the next three chapters, Paul is going to rough the Corinthian church up quite a bit. It's going to get brutal. In fact, it's so brutal... And it's such a rapid change that many scholars believe this actually isn't part of the original letter. What do I mean? Well, Paul wrote four letters to the Corinthian church, and we've discussed it, and I'll cover it briefly. He wrote the previous letter, called the previous letter because he says in 1 Corinthians, I previously wrote to you. Previous letter was letter number one. We don't have any of it. It's lost. Then he wrote 1 Corinthians. And then many scholars, and I kind of agree with them on this one, wrote a third letter called the Severe Letter. He offered them correction. They refused. He sent Timothy. They didn't heed his instructions. And so he writes the Severe Letter. And then he writes 2 Corinthians. So if you're super confused, 2 Corinthians is actually the fourth letter that Paul wrote. And a lot of scholars will say, well, it actually ended in chapter 9. Verse 10 starts the severe letter. Now, I don't know if that's true, but I bring that up to say, if you go home and you study this, you're going to see that brought up. This does mark a rapid change in tone. And if you're worried about, oh, we don't have all of Paul's writing, understand that not everything Paul wrote was the inspired word of God. Colts like to hang on to that. Well, you guys don't even have all of Paul's letters, so you need the Bible and. No, we don't. This is complete. Nothing needs to be added to it. We don't need the Bible and anything. But... That could very well be. Nevertheless, we're here. I asked Pastor Bill if I could teach something else, and he said no. (laughs) The Lord is leading me, though. No, he's not. Tell me why. I don't really have a good reason. Let's just read through it. Chapter 10, verse 1. Now I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you, by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am lowly among you, but being absent and bold toward you. But I beg you that when I am present, I may not be bold with that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some, who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. Verse 3, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war against, excuse me, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God, for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, 
bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Verse 6, and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Do you look at things according to the outward appearance? If anyone is convinced in himself that he is Christ, let him again consider in himself that just as he is Christ, even so we are Christ. Verse 8, for even if I should boast somewhat more about our authority, which the Lord gave, the Lord gave us for edification and not for your destruction, I shall not be ashamed, lest I seem to terrify you by letters. For his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. Let such a person consider this, that we are in word by letters, excuse me, let such a person consider this, that what we are in word by letters, when we are absent, such we will also be indeed when we are present. For we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves, but they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. Verse 13, we, however will boast beyond measure, will not boast beyond measure, but within the limits of the sphere which God has appointed us, a sphere which especially includes you. For we are not overextending ourselves as though our authority did not extend to you, for it was to you that we came with the gospel of Christ. Verse 15, not boasting of things beyond measure, that is, in other men's labors, but having hope that as your faith is increased, we shall be greatly enlarged by you in our sphere. Verse 16, to preach the gospel in the regions beyond you and not to boast in another man's sphere of accomplishment. But he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. For not he who commends himself is approved, but whom the Lord commends. So it gets awfully heavy. And Sandy Adams says, some verses have teeth, let them bite. And if you know me, I'm typically not afraid to say exactly what I mean. However, there's no real enjoyment for us in this. Should this shoe fit you today, I don't rejoice in that. There's no pleasure in, hey man, smack, you shouldn't be doing that. In fact, Paul himself finds no pleasure in it either. Verse 1, Now I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am lowly among you, but being absent am bold towards you. But I beg you that when I am present, I may not be bold with that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. So practically, two of the things he says are disarming. There's a contention, a division within the church in Corinth. And instead of demanding, manipulating, coercing, forcing, he begs and he pleads. And understand that this is obviously a letter. Paul was not in Corinth. And so practically... A good practice here is he lets them know where he's coming from. In verse 1, he says, the meekness and gentleness of Christ. 
Now, I've made this mistake, and it's easy to make, but when you're texting or emailing, people can't see your facial expressions. They can't hear your tone of voice, and so often you can read things, and you imply your own tone to what somebody's saying to you. And you, man, why? And you start reading between the lines and overthinking it. So Paul, to avoid that, this is where I'm coming from, from the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Now he's going to rough them up quite a bit. And their main accusation, he's addressed it already in verse 1. You claim that I am lowly when I'm here, and I'm bold when I'm away, that I'm all bark and I'm no bite, I avoid confrontation, and then when I leave, I write these mean letters to you. That was one of their main accusations against him. Verse 2, he says, I beg you that when I am present, I may not be bold with that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some who think of us as though we walked according to the flesh. So Paul starts off begging and pleading, not demanding, not manipulating not trying to coerce, not trying to give ultimatums, but begging and pleading. He states his position, meekness and gentleness, and also addresses two of the bigger concerns that they had. First, that Paul was two-faced. You're one way when you're here and you're another way when you're gone. You're you're duplicitous in nature, Paul. You're two-faced. We want you to be consistent. Who are you? We don't know who you are, and you, you know what? You're all bark, you're no bite. And so what you're doing is according to the flesh. The flesh is a Christian buzzword that you hear, you're here thrown around in church. That was in the flesh. And it means our sin nature, according to our carnal nature. And so that's what they're saying about Paul. His ministry, this was in the flesh. And Paul, he's two-faced. And so he's addressed their concerns But notice also what he didn't do. Why was Paul bold with the Corinthian church? Well, let's go over some of the things that they did. Almost as soon as he left, divisions began forming within the church in Corinth. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of the Holy Spirit, I'm of this, I'm of that, right? They were getting drunk at their communion feast, practicing gluttony. They were suing each other. There was, in fact, a man there who took his father's wife, his stepmom, and began an illicit relationship with her. And it's not like these things happened and were dealt with. The Corinthian church was so blinded, so Corinthianized, that they thought this was cool. Well, look how much we love this guy. We, we even let him bring his stepmom here, even though it's completely inappropriate and wrong. They did things, Paul says, that wasn't even named among the unchurched people. What in the world is going on? And so he was bold with them. But he doesn't bring that up. He doesn't reach back for old ammunition and say, but you remember why I was bold with you, right, guys? You remember why I dealt with you harshly, because you asked for it. You needed it. Why not? Certainly that would be my go-to. If I'm going to write this letter to the Corinthian church, I'm going to say, don't you remember why I said this to you? Don't you remember your own behavior? But they've repented of those sins. And so Christ forgave him, them, and Paul has forgiven them. There's no need in argument, especially with our spouses, to reach back for ammunition because there is no practical end in sight. 
Paul reaches back for ammunition. Well, remember when you did this. Paul, remember when you killed Christians? It only adds to the problem. You reach back, and then your wife reached back a little further. I've never done that to my wife, but maybe some of you have. Just lying, it's a total lie. <laughs> because what the real goal is there is not restoration, but rather to win an argument. Paul has no desire to win the argument, as if being judged in a boxing match, he wants to restore. He's offering correction, and yeah, it's hard, but his desire, his heart, is to restore the people, the people who are against him. And notice he says some. He doesn't say all in verse 2. He doesn't say all of you think this about me, but some of you. And so with the shepherd's heart, he's protecting the sheep that are there and correcting the sheep that have went astray. He isn't picking sides, but rather, I want to restore you guys but I also won't let you damage and bring division. We must endeavor to keep the unity. If you look at the early church in the book of Acts, there was issues that come up and they dealt with them, but they moved with unity. Unity is so important. It's one of the things that Bill tries to practice here. And the fact that there's never been a church split at Cornerstone is a wonderful, beautiful thing of God, but it took practical steps in that way. Our board never moves forward without a unanimous vote. Though legally, yes, they can. Spiritually, they won't allow that. One dissenting vote will stop it. Until they're of one accord, they won't move forward. They endeavor, they practice, they try to keep the unity. Verse 3, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. And so he's simply addressing their claims and he's playing with the word flesh there. He's saying, yeah, I'm flesh and bone. I'm a human being. I have a heart. I have blood. I have all those things. Yeah, I'm, I'm here in the flesh. But my work, my ministry to you wasn't according to the flesh. And he's going to prove practically throughout this discourse Why? And it'll show us how to know if something we're doing is of the flesh, that is, of our sin nature, or if it's ordained by the Lord. Verse 4, The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. I'm not going to come here and duel it out with you. We're not going to play a sword fight or go to fisticuffs. That's not what I'm here to do. Our weapons are much stronger than that. And the spiritual battle can manifest itself in an ugly way in the natural world. Satan is very real. And it's recorded of him that he scours the earth seeking whom he can devour. Now, if you look through the Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament, he never attacks an unbeliever. Not once is it mentioned that Satan attacks somebody who does not believe in God because they're on his side. And in verse 3, it says, excuse me, verse 4, that our weapons are mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. 
You see, in World War II, we crossed the English Channel, the United States, Allied forces. They landed there in Normandy, Omaha Beach, the most famous. 10,000 lives that morning. And they fought and they fought. And that very day, World War II was won. But the battle continued on. The fight continued after that, but once we got a stronghold in Germany, they had a war on two fronts. They were divided and therefore could not stand. Satan, the war is over. He has no victory. But he does what we do when we're getting pushed into a pool. If I got to get thrown into this pool, I'm taking everybody with me. Everybody's coming with me who's trying to throw me in here. And so Satan, in that manner, I'm taking as many as I can with me. You're all coming with me. The reason to attack the church is simple. And it tells us why in verse 4. Because we are mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. The sad part is the manner in which Paul had to use this verse. Because the reality is Satan had a stronghold in the church. This verse had to apply instead of forward momentum to just holding ground. It couldn't be used in an offensive manner and, and like the walls fell in Jericho. No, no, no. Guys, we, we're hardly keeping it together. Our weapons, our offensive weapon had to be used to preserve unity because they allowed sin in the camp. They meditated on the things of this world. They focused on Paul. And then it fell apart. And it started to fall apart. And so Paul says, I'm not coming here. I'm not coming here to fight it out with you in the physical world, but the weapons I have are mighty for pulling down strongholds. The shame is those strongholds were in the church where they should not be. It should not be so. We are more than conquerors. Not just Bill, not just the leadership, every one of you in here, more than conquerors. And yet so often we choose to divide amongst each other. There are many ways for a church to kill itself. Statistically, historically, the most used way is when the sheep divide in the body. And it implodes. A kingdom divided cannot stand. Verse 5. Casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Casting down arguments. How do we do that? I've never argued with my wife, but if I did, I would try and cast those arguments down. What is a practical way? How, what does Paul mean? Casting down arguments. Flip back in your Bible to your left to Acts chapter 15, and we'll give you a practical example of that. In Acts chapter 15, well, there's an argument in the early church. There was an issue that arose within the body. And understand that as soon as the church was birthed, there was already opposition against it. There were already cults out there attacking the church. And now in Acts chapter 15, where they stand, there's potential for a catastrophic division. Verse 15, And certain men came down from Judea, Judea, and taught the brethren 
unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So there's no small dissension. This is an argument. This is a major issue. Do Gentiles need to be circumcised? Well, as we know now, absolutely not. But understand, this was a new work of God. The Holy Spirit falling on the Gentile, Gentiles, anybody who's not of Jewish descent, this was new to them. And though scripturally there was context for it, some didn't expect it. And so holding on to their old customs, they wanted, no, 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 you have to do this. And so there is a dispute. And verse 5, So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to all brethren. And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all things that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up, saying, It is necessary to circumcise them and command them to keep the law of Moses. They were having problems letting go. Verse 6, Now the apostles and elders came together to consider this. It's called the Jerusalem Council. And when there had been much dispute, much dispute in the early church, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us and made no distinction between them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the necks of the disciples, which are neither, neither our fathers nor we were, were able to bear. But we believe that through grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Verse 12, Then all the multitude kept silent, listened to Barabbas and Paul, declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them. Among the Gentiles, verse 13, And after they had become silent, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at first visited the Gentiles to take out, take out of them a people for his name. And with the words of the prophets agree, just as it, as it is written, after this I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David which have fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things. So they had this great argument. They had this dispute among leaders. Among leaders in the early church. What did they do? Well, Peter gets up and he personalizes it. Hey, guys, we couldn't do this either. Remember? This law, the law, the yoke of that, we couldn't do that either. It crushed us. Paul gets up and tells him of his experience. This is what I've seen God do. 
This is what God is doing. This is a move of God. And the end of the argument, the end of the discourse, and it's backed up by the Word of God. So they use their personal experience, they use their spiritual experience, and most importantly, verified it by the Word of God. There's no more need to argue about this. That is why we teach verse by verse, chapter by chapter. So our experience and our testimony is verified there in the Word of God so we don't get sideways. It helps to keep us in line. Yes, and I feel like God is doing this work. And then we look to this Scripture. Is this how it's done? There's a reason why we use gifts in a specific way, in a specific order, because we're given that example in Scripture. And so for casting down arguments, the authority there is the Word of God, this, the, the written and inspired Word of God. And they use their personal experience and their spiritual experience. This argument ends now. And they move forward with one accord. Casting down arguments, verse 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Casting down arguments by the Spirit, by the Word, our experience, what we know. Casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself, itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Here's another sad point. Paul isn't writing to unsaved people. Paul's writing to Christians, people who have professed Christ, who have given their life, and he says to them in verse 5, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Does that mean that our thought life that we can behave in a manner as Christians which is contrary to the Lord? Absolutely. Paul writes a lot about it in Romans 6, 7, and 8. That as saved people, as Christians, this isn't a question of salvation, but our mindset, our walk can be carnal. That is a terrifying thing, and so he remedies that at the end of verse 5. As opposed to walking in the flesh, it starts with our thought life, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. You've seen those commercials, no doubt, the infomercials. You put your food in like a pot or whatever it is. You put on a timer. You set it and forget it. Don't be too excited to say it. And out pops this gourmet meal, right? It's perfectly cooked. You just set it and there we go but I'm going to encourage you to do something else today you're going to submit it and there you go taking all thoughts captive I can't stand that guy my poor son in kindergarten he's struggling last year because there was a kid there with stinky breath and he said dad I can't talk to him it makes me want to throw up and I kind of felt good because, oh, thank God my kid's not the stinky one. <laughs> but then you want to encourage them, you can do better than that. Because what you don't like about somebody else 
is your sin nature in yourself. That's the issue. Paul's going to address it later, but they're in Christ as Paul's in Christ. Those are your brothers, your sisters. Not to look at them, but looking unto Christ. And so we take these issues, man, instead of gossiping, instead of slandering, instead of going to a brother and getting confirmation, don't you hate that guy? Isn't he ugly? Isn't he dumb? Whatever it is. We submit those things to the Lord. We confess them. And then we need to move on. See, the Corinthian church had this issue. Paul wrote to them, and they molded over in their head, and they overthought it. Well, what else could he mean? What do you think? I'm sick of this guy. And then they began to form camps. Clicks within their body. I can't stand Paul camp. And so their eyes no longer on the Lord, but fixed on Paul. Now, Paul's ministry should point to the Lord. It should glorify God, and it did. And he'll address that later. It is, in fact, how we know and we recognize the call of the Lord. Does their ministry glorify God or not? But they were solely fixed on Paul. And it was their thought life was the beginning of it. They, weren't, they didn't receive his letter. And no doubt, what we're going to read, and you're going to continue to read the next few weeks, is hard. And say, okay, Lord, what do you want to show me in this? Reveal my heart to me. But in their pride and their arrogance, they began to overthink this, not wanting to receive correction. They poured their over and over into meditating on Paul and what he said as opposed to the Lord. When we're presented with these challenges, we need to submit it and forget it. Not go around and manipulate other people. Not try and form a camp. It's not a boxing match. There's no judges who's going to decide who won this round. The word warfare that he used earlier, a spiritual warfare, isn't a skirmish. It isn't a battle, but it's a campaign. Understand that Satan has a campaign against you, but it starts with a small battle. It starts with a small gossip. It starts with you getting upset at one leader and going to the other leader. And then when you don't get your way, you go somewhere else. And then when you don't get your way, you go somewhere else. Do you not understand that you are doing the work of Satan, of your own enemy? That's what you're doing. And rather than run the risk of doing that, I'd rather submit it and forget it. Continue to pray about it. King David was rightfully anointed king over Israel. That throne was his, and he knew it. But he wouldn't touch King Saul. He wouldn't harm Saul because he didn't want to risk fighting against the Lord's anointed. I'm not going to fight God, David said. When God wants Saul gone, Saul will be gone. But until then, I'm hands off. Now, what was the cost of this for King David? Hiding in the wilderness, starving, pretending that he was crazy, couldn't hang out with his best friends, and lost his wife. But I won't fight against the Lord. I won't do that. And he had opportunities. And he lets all know, I could have killed you tonight, but I didn't. I caught you sleeping, but I wouldn't touch you. Not for you, Saul, but for the Lord. And that's what we do. We submit it unto the Lord. Verse 6, And being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. That is to say, I'm going to allow you to make up your mind first. This isn't a rash decision on Paul's part. 
He's not jumping to conclusions. The first time somebody says, hey, I don't like what you did, he doesn't, I'm going to kick you out of the church. I'm going to let you make your mind up. And when you've made your mind up, then I'll be whatever is necessary. Whatever you need me to be, I will be all things to all men. Verse 7, do you look at things according to the outward appearance? If anyone is convinced in himself that he is Christ, let him again consider this in himself, that just as he is Christ, even so we are Christ. Now the problem with Paul, a little issue that he had is, apparently he was ugly. I don't have that problem, but Paul did. <laughs> right? Right? Where's my wife? My grandpa says real men are ugly. Paul was probably bow-legged. If you're bow-legged, I'm sorry. In fact, I'm not going to describe Paul. I don't want to offend anybody here. But historically, church history tells us that he was ugly and had a high-pitched voice. He wasn't much to look at. And understand, he wasn't a young man. He's over 50 years old. Or like, I mean, Bill said if you're past the halfway point, he was past the halfway point, right? But what were they used to where they lived? Well, they wanted good-looking, tall, handsome, whatever it was, under, under 50. <laughs> whatever it was. But they were regarding Paul, look at you, dude. You're not much to look at. Well, what happened when Israel chose King Saul? Well, they liked the way he looked. He stood ahead above everybody. They chose him by his appearance only, and they got exactly what they wanted, a king, but not a king who loved the Lord. They only looked at his appearance only. Why did people miss Christ? Because some looked at him in appearance only. Man, this guy isn't much to look at. He's supposed to overthrow the Roman government? Look at him. Look at his followers. They regarded Paul according to the flesh. Well, you're just not that good, dude. You're pretty ugly and you're not a good speaker. They had great orators there, but they weren't full of the Holy Spirit. Paul refused to address them in this manner, though I think he could have spoken to them eloquently and been fancy. We read some of the things he wrote. Paul mastered the Greek language. He was a highly educated man, but he wouldn't do it in his own power. Because they were accustomed to that. That's what they wanted. He wanted to point them to Christ. And that very heart they used to hold that against him. Verse 8, For even if I should boast somewhat more about our authority, which the Lord gave me, excuse me, which the Lord gave us for edification and not for your destruction, I shall not be ashamed. And so Paul's a little bashful, and so he gets kind of sarcastic here. Well, if I got a boast, I'm going to boast in the authority that God gave me, not wanting to address it, not wanting to flex on the people, but he gives a distinction here. How do we know, how do you recognize God-given authority? Well, Paul says it right here, for edification and not for destruction. Challenge yourself in your own life. Is what I'm saying going to build up? That's what edification means, going to build up the body? Or is it going to tear down? And understanding that, you have two paths. One is for the Lord, and one is for Satan. There is no middle ground. You edify or you're tearing down. You recognize a minister or preacher, is this guy from the Lord? 
Is he building me up? And is he glorifying the Lord? And Paul will cover that later. Is there edification? Is the group I'm in solely focused on everything that we don't like about the church and we don't like about leaders? Or are you praying for your leaders as God has commanded? Sure, we've done a couple studies because they are there on giving, and that's a great thing, but mostly the leaders here covet your prayers. They're absolutely necessary. Be praying for them. Sandy Adams said, have your pastors back. Verse 9, lest I seem to terrify you by letters. And this is why I hope Paul's writing it like this, but he's not. And I just want to say that. Like, for his letters, they say, are weighty. You know, like kind of mocking him, but I know he's not. Verse 9, lest I seem to terrify you by letters. For his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful. But his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. Let such a person consider this. What we are in word by letters when we are absent, such we will be also indeed when we are present. I'll give you as much as you want. You want consistency? You want me to be the same guy? I'll give that guy to you. You're, I'm all barking, no bite. Continue in this fashion and I'll give you all the bite that you want. That is to say, I can be as consistent as you need me to be. Or rather, you'll receive as much correction as needed. The point isn't to be overly brutal, to stomp them out to pieces, but however much you need, I will give you that. No more and no less. And the same is with the Lord. When we need corrections, He is faithful to correct us. To restore. Not to ruin a a friendship. Not to ruin, not to dis... Oh, you can never come to this church. To restore. Paul is willing to go as far as they forced him to. As he said before, this is established in the meekness and gentleness of Christ. This broke his heart, he tells them. This broke broke my heart to write this to you. Verse 12, For we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves, but they, measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves, are not wise. Notice again, he refrains from insulting. Could have said, are fools. But to soften the blow, and he's going to continue to give it to him quite a bit, but to soften it, I'm coming in the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I'm begging and pleading with you. I'm not reaching back for old ammunition. And I'm not calling you a fool. I'm just saying, man, this isn't very wise. He could have, and perhaps even it would have been the shoe fit, but he wants to restore, not to insult. Now, the issue was that they were, I'm better than that guy. Let such a person consider this, that what we are in word by letters, when we are absent, so we will be indeed when we are present. Why? For we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves, but they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves are not wise. I'm not measuring myself up against you in Corinth. I'm not going to answer even he doesn't answer all of their accusations. I'm not comparing, oh, I'm a better teacher than him and I'm smarter than that guy 
and I'm better looking than that guy. Absolutely not. People who do that, the measuring stick isn't being better than somebody else. Christ. Are you in Christ? How do you know if you're in the flesh or not? Are you comparing yourself against other people? Well, I'm not so bad. I'm better than him. You're outside of the will of God. Verse 13, We, however, will not boast beyond measure, but within the limits and the sphere which God appointed us, a sphere which especially includes you. For we are not overextending ourselves as though our authority did not extend to you, for it was to you that we came with the gospel of Christ. Verse 15, Not boasting of the things beyond measure, that is, in other men's labors, but having hope that as your faith is increased, we shall be greatly enlarged in your sphere to preach the gospel in the regions beyond you and not boast in another man's sphere of accomplishment. Paul's saying, I certainly do have this authority. Remember, I'm the one, I brought the gospel to you. I taught you these things. I'm not telling you about what somebody else did and trying to say, well, I could have done it better because that was what was happening to Paul. I went to you, and this isn't out of bounds. This is within the realm of my authority. Should you call Cornerstone your home church, you submit to Pastor Bill's authority who submits to the Lord. And should you not like that, you need to submit that to the Lord. And the end result would be, before cause division, you need to find a new church. Maybe God has something else for you where you would find it easier to submit to somebody else's leadership. But we don't go and we don't cause divisions. And we don't go and piggyback on somebody else's work and try and draw attention to ourselves, comparing ourselves by ourselves. That's not the measuring stick. The authority there was God-given. Lest we fight against the Lord, my King David, I'll submit it and I'll forget it. Verse 17, but he who glories, let him glory in the Lord, for not he who commends himself is approved by himself, but whom the Lord commends. But he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Is the ministry edifying? Does it build up? And does it point to Christ? Does it glorify God? That is how we know. You hear a preacher who preaches about himself? Be weary of that man. You hear a preacher who compares himself to other preacher, avoid that man. You're in a ministry that just tears down, get out of it. Does it edify and glorify the Lord? Perhaps, yeah, our church sometimes, people are messy, life is messy, church can get messy. Can I submit it and forget it? Can I move forward in this way? And if you can't, before you divide, before you dare fight against the Lord. Just submit it to Him. Philippians chapter 2. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Verse 4. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. In fact, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant or a slave and coming in the likeness of men. 
and that Christ is in you. No, it's not always easy, and it's certainly not always fun. But unity in the church is a very necessary and a very fragile thing. But if you see the path you're on this morning, and you don't like it, change it. Let this mind be in you that was in Christ. Christ is in you. Take your thoughts captive, submit it, and forget it. Lord, we come before you and we thank you that you're faithful, Father. And if I beat the sheep and if I was too hard, Lord, I pray that you would forgive me. But I also pray that as you speak, Father, if we were cut, if we were wounded, Lord, I pray that you would show us in what manner we ought to change. We thank you that you're faithful even when we're faithless. We thank you for the unity that we do have, Lord. And we thank you for our salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.